Episode 111, 211 even, of 40 going on 14. I'm Mike. I'm Patrick. I'm Joel. And I'm Josh. And thinking about it, affinity for hockey masks, creeps around without bothering anybody, never interrupts in conversations. I'm pretty sure Jason Voorhees is Canadian. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry for killing you, eh? (laughs) Hey, uh... You want to go to Tim Hortons after this? We can get ourselves some uh, coffee and donuts. Sounds like a plan, Hoser. All right, that's and all I got with a great that. start. Yeah. <laughs> and thrilling. So we're talking about Friday the 13th right after Friday the 13th. So meta. I know. How deep can we go with these cuts? Uh, yeah, Friday the 13th, 1981. 80. Stop that. Um, <laughs> if you like ADHD, <laughs> you guys are giving me nothing here. <laughs> if you like ADHD, you're already off of this show. Yeah. Uh, you might like rapidly switching between the various shows of the Podcast <laughs> Collective. Nice. <laughs> Such as On the Block. Joel's own The Sunshine Happy Pants Hour. The Internet with Scott the Pool Boy. Tales from the Hard Side. And, of course, the Rad Dad Radio Hour. Rear, 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 Rad Dad. There you go, Pat. Thank you. Fantastic. Um, so, yeah, so those are some of our other shows where we can find our older stuff on iTunes, Blueberry, Stitcher, Shoe, Podverse FM, all sorts of places out there. Home on the web, 4014 at gmail.com. Uh, if you can't find us, you're not trying. Right. Because <laughs> we're everywhere. We are in your pantry checking the expiration date of your coffee. We are? I didn't you, get that uh, no, well, not right now, but you probably I, should do that. I am. I'm going to so. go check. So do we have any voicemails? He says thinking he's probably uploading that right now. Yes, we do, and I was <laughs> muted because I was trying to upload it. <laughs> All right, so anyway, we'll go back to what we're talking about. You keep uploading that. I'll keep an eye on it. All right, oh, so... Okay, so yeah, I'm a creeper in your pantry, everybody. Yes. <laughs> and we watched Friday the 13th, 1980, and Friday the 13th, 2009? Yes. Yes. Um, which the second one, the 2009, or 2009, kind of a retelling, restart, reboot? The reboot, basically, yeah. They yeah. combined the first three movies into one, basically. Mm-hmm. That's what it, that's really what it felt like. So, uh, yeah. So, <clears throat> hey, I got a voicemail. <laughs> I see it. I see it. Let's go. Voicemail time. Professionals. Hey guys, this is listener. Long time listening. Long time not calling. 
just started listening again. I know I called him a while ago and said I was, but now I really am, I promise. I started walking to work the third day I've walked to and from work. I'm just getting ready to leave work, but I thought it was kind of funny the day that I started walking in the rotation where I was at was your transportation episode. <laughs> so I was walking to and from work, listening to you guys talking about not being able to drive and driving and smashy. So I'll catch you guys later. Um, don't forget butts to the front. And uh, I really like Batby. Flap. He likes what? Flap. Wow. <laughs> I'd forgotten about Flap. Oh, that was that was like twenty episodes ago. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, he's working his way through the archives. Well, I don't remember what a Flap was. I, I can't remember the. I think it was probably an acronym of the week. It was the acronym of the week. I can't. I'm trying to remember what it. Um, but just randomly, I, I started pronouncing it before the show. Flap. Oh, I remember that now. Flap. For what? A, for what? Well, damn it. For flap and flap. And I think Joel was away from the keyboard when we first started doing flaff and we were tormenting with it because we would not explain what it was. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I did miss that, and then it became a thing. And yeah, and I'm glad he brought back much to the front. Yes. Oh, yeah. We need to remember yeah, that more often. Always good to hear from you. I actually think we got that voicemail a week or two ago, he said, question mark. But uh, I didn't get a notification. Just randomly checked the voicemail manually last week. Hmm. Well, I think we should flaff on over to the next thing. Flaff. About that time? About that time. This week in music, movies, and TV. All right. So the uh, time date is May 9th, 1980. That is the release of the first Friday the 13th. And uh, music, Joel. Music, everybody dance. The number one song in the land of the free is Call Me by Blondie. I, I don't know why I couldn't read that properly. I can't read anything properly. It's early. But Call Me! I like that song, it's and I'm not song. sure why. Because I, like okay. I like Blondie. Yeah. Deborah Harry. Uh, on May 4th, America's Top Ten, the television series or a television version of Radio's America Top America Top 40, and hosted by Casey Kasem, debuted. So, You're right. You can't read. No, I can't. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what's wrong with me, but yes, let me try again. On Ameri- on, damn it. <laughs> Just move on. I'm moving forward. Can't, can't wait for this one. On May 18th, Ian Curtis, vocalist of Joy Division, hung himself in his Macclesfield home. Uh, just one day before Joy Division was scheduled to begin their first U.S. tour, and he was promptly absorbed. Oh, yeah, I'm gonna give you a pass on Macclesfield. Yeah, that's a, that's a rough one. Macclesfield, Ian Curtis. I remember some people, you know, sitting in the in the library. Hey, what are you listening to? Joy Division. Oh, really? It's not what you think, <laughs> right? They're like, are you okay? Is everything all right? He's, he, must, he must be really depressed. He's listening to Joy Division. What, to bring, make him feel better? No, not at all. <laughs> no, not I'm at all. I'm going to listen to the Smiths. Oh, if somebody's listening to the Smiths and Joy Division, let's say if the, the triumvirate is Smith, Joy Division, and The Cure. <laughs> then, there you go. Yeah. You know, oh, and Bauhaus. 
ba- oh, well, um, yeah, Bajos. They're pretty much just eating razor blades at that point. And, and, <laughs> and Nick Cage. Oh, Jesus. Nick now, Cage? Yeah. As in the actor? Dropping, yeah, dropping that fat beat. Oh, no, not the bees. <laughs> exactly. I think you mean Nick Cave. Yeah, yeah, that's what. Oh, did I, yeah, I said Cage, didn't I? You yeah. totally said Cage. Yeah. <laughs> I was wondering why you were making fun of it. I'm like, what? I thought that was a pretty good one. <laughs> uh, I'm just imagining him on stage singing, doing <laughs> the his, bees! Uh, the his bees! karate kick dance from Wild at Heart. Um, <laughs> anyway, I Don't Like Mondays by the Boomtown Rats won the best pop song and outstanding British lyric categories at the 25th Ivor Novello Festival or Awards, excuse me. Why did I say festival? <laughs> words and festival are totally different words. <laughs> Completely different. Uh, the Boomtown Rats lead singer Bob Geldof was inspired to write the song after reading about the tragic shooting spree when 16-year-old Brenda Spencer killed two people and wounded nine others when she fired from her house across the street into the entrance of the acronym of the week, S-D-G-C-E-S. Oh, yeah, I'm pretty sure that is the famous uh, Mexican saying, Sandra D's got chlamydia, eh, senor? <laughs> <laughs> so close so close it was san diego's grover cleveland elementary school oh you were close there's a lot of chlamydia school. in that school to be fair <laughs> well grover cleveland i guess you get the chlamydia vibe either way i can't wait to hear the the song that's going to come out of las vegas oh jesus <laughs> All right, so moving on to movies. Released along with Friday the 13th was Don Adams' The Nude Bomb. I have Friday seen Friday the 13th knocked off Coal Miner's Daughter to take the number one spot. I have seen The Nude Bomb. That's the one I was, yeah, that's the one I was telling you. I was like, you'll know which one I'm talking about when you see it. Yep. Yeah. I, I forgot one. about that movie. Uh, which, which, of course, means I have seen Don Adams' ass. <laughs> I saw that in the theater with my parents, The really? Nude Bomb. Huh. Huh. <laughs> That's concerning, kind of. What no made you think that was a good idea? It was a PG you know, movie, so it couldn't have been too bad. In the 80s. Yeah, I was going to so, say early 80s PG. So was we, the airplane. We this. Yeah, well, I mean, I'd, I'd already seen plenty of boobs at that point. I mean, I was eight years old. Come on. Yeah, but had you seen Don Adams' boobs? <laughs> Would you believe they're real? <laughs> Lillian Roth had a stroke and died on May 12th at the age of 69. Before that, she'd been a Hollywood movie B-list actress in the 20s and 30s after becoming a popular vaudeville attraction. She starred in dozens of films and Broadway plays, and the 1955 I'll Cry Tomorrow was based on her autobiography. She was portrayed by Susan Hayward, who was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Actress for her performance. That's got to really suck. They somebody they do a biopic on your life and that person wins the Academy Award and you are an actress. That was one of my favorite things before DiCaprio finally won his Oscar. That you know I read somewhere on the internet somebody was like, "What if Leo dies, never wins an Oscar, and they do a biopic of him and the guy who portrays him wins an Oscar for that?" <laughs> oh, she was in Animal Crackers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Probably Nick Cage will do the uh, <clears throat> the theme song from the film. She was also an Alice. <laughs> Sweet Alice. Also on May 11th, mobster Henry Hill is arrested for drug possession. And I'm sure we all know what that means. But for the audience, anyone? 
No one. I, I read it as Benny Hill earlier, so I don't know. <laughs> it's early, man. He is that. That's the guy who uh, Goodfellas is based on. Oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Henry oh. Hill is the character that Ray Liotta played. So True. if that didn't happen on May 11th, then we don't even get Goodfellas movie. True confession. Don't tell me that you have not seen this movie. I have not seen Goodfellas. Oh my God, dude! I, just oh uh, wait, no, I was gonna say I forgot that you guys are a cord cutter. I was gonna say just leave the TV on. You will see it eventually. It's <laughs> <laughs> so good, it really is. Especially is, the first two thirds. Is Benny Hill in it? No, no. Oh. That's just Joel being illiterate. Okay. All right, then TV. The top shows are Dallas, The Dukes of Hazard, and MASH. Kind of a mishmash awesome. of really good and really confusing why it's in the top show stuff. <laughs> Dukes of Hazard is one of those shows where it was in the top five every week, but nobody admitted to watching it. Like Jag. Oh. I watched the hell out of The Dukes of Hazard. I thought you were going to say Jag. <laughs> Have I ever told you guys my Dukes of Hazard story? No, but I'd like to hear. Is it, it the one where you wind up looking like your dad? Uh, <laughs> I have, uh, I have never in my life seen anything but the first half of a Dukes of Hazards movie or, or TV show, because my parents were in a bowling league and we had to leave at like seven thirty every Friday night to get there. So I would watch the first half and then we would leave, and I never knew how. <laughs> I, I, just, I never knew how them Duke boys got out of whatever mess they were in. I was going to say, I just assumed that when it paused and the narrator started talking, you assumed the show was over and turned it off. <laughs> <laughs> now there's words. I don't want to listen to words. So I, I never got to see the second half of the Dukes of Hazard show. Who was the announcer? I Was that Chris Christopherson, Waylon Jennings, somebody oh, famous? Was Waylon Jennings. I thought it was Waylon Jennings. Okay. okay. I was not confident enough to work the name specifically into my joke, though. <laughs> All right. Next up on May 6th, Ron Howard and Donnie Moss leave the cast of Happy Days as regulars following the episode Ralph's Family Problem. It's chlamydia. That's what it is. When <laughs> Damn happy- it, Sandra. <laughs> when Happy Days returns I thought maybe fall, he went to Grover Cleveland. <laughs> Henry Winkler is given top billing in the opening credits. Because, to tell the truth, nobody really gave a damn about Ron Howard and Donnie Moss and that, because everybody just wanted to see the funds. Until he jumped the shark. Literally. Uh, the Return of the King, A Story of the Hobbits, was a 1979 animated musical adaptation of The Return of the King, the third book in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. The special aired on ABC on Sunday, May 11th, 1980. Critical and fan reaction was lukewarm. Yeah, that's about right. I mean, I, I kind of think this was just made because the uh, Bakshi Lord of the Rings ends abruptly on a cliffhanger somewhere in Two Towers. And I'm like, uh, you know, if we just finish this unfinished cartoon project, people will watch it. We'll get ratings. Mm-hmm. They want to know what the ending was, so we might as well let them let them see. Yeah, and it just it wasn't that great. So was that the one that that, that awful with when there's a whip, there's a way song. No, that's uh, that's the Hobbit. That is a Hobbit. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. So much awful. Which one has a Leonard Nimoy sound? <laughs> Would be none <laughs> of them. Bilbo Baggins, <laughs> little Hobbit of them all. <laughs> I like when Nick Cage covered it later. <laughs> I can't believe I didn't even notice I said that. <laughs> well, I mean, I can. How confused you were that we were making fun of you for it too. <laughs> 
I'm, I was so confused. I'm like, what's wrong with, with the Nick Cave reference? <laughs> so shit, what I do now? <laughs> I'm trying to distract from my horrible music reading. So, All right. So <laughs> Ellie Kemper was born on May 4th. Yeah. Me- meow. Yeah. Says. Yeah. Ellie for Kemper those... from, from the office from Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Yeah. That's very, where very most people are from. She's going to make it so dry for you. <laughs> she, she regrets making that. Yeah, I was going to say that that's a pretty deep. And it goes on for about 20 seconds too long. It would have been really funny if it had been like a 10, 12 second video. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, I, I, I think Ellie Kemper is hysterical and gorgeous. She is very adorable. Moving on to sports. On May 11th, Pete Rose, the current all-time career hits leader in MLB history, did what only seven other players have ever done in the modern era of professional baseball. In the second inning of a game versus his old team, he stole second, third, and home in the same inning on the way to a 7-3 to three win. God damn. It's pretty impressive. I mean, one of the hardest things to do in baseball is steal home because the pitcher is throwing the ball 100 miles an hour that direction. <laughs> yeah. It's like he was like, hey, you want to see something cool? Hold my beer. <laughs> you like First that? time somebody tried that, everybody had to be like, what the hell? You could do that? <laughs> That's a thing? <laughs> it's got to be like the first time somebody dunked a basketball. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> I could just jump up and throw it in? All right, moving on. On May 16th, then-rookie Magic Johnson scored 42 points to lead the Los Angeles Lakers to a 123-107 to victory over the Philadelphia 76ers to clinch the NBA championship for the Lakers, who prevailed despite the absence of future Basketball Hall of Fame center Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. So at this point, Jabbar is a, he's a name. He's like the superstar and Magic Johnson. Nobody knows who he is. Magic Johnson, people know who he is because he just won the national championship as, as a college uh, senior oh, okay. from, from Michigan State. And he was one of the top draft picks and everything. So, I mean, he, he was a sensation already, but he was nowhere near, like nobody knew at that point he was going to be like one of the top you know 20 players of all time. But Kareem Abdul-Jabbar had already been established as a champion, as a, you know, as one of the greats. And Magic Johnson actually, for a little while during this game, played center. He played, he, he literally played every position at one point during the game. That's really interesting because now, like thirty years later, you just think of them as contemporaries, not realizing that Jabbar was huge in yeah. uh, Johnson's rookie season. Exactly. He's no Spud Webb. I mean. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar played for 23 seasons, so he a lot of people came and went during his tenure. God damn, that's yeah. insane. He still leads the the he has the record for most games played, most points ever scored. You know, he over is 52,000 and, and change points he scored in his career. Now, Probably what, never never be touched ever. Was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was he the guy who went into volleyball after it? Or who was that? That no, that was Will Chamberlain. Will Chamberlain. Okay. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar played against Will Chamberlain. <laughs> <laughs> That's how long his career was. Good God. Wow. <clears throat> Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was in uh, Enter the Dragon. He yes, was. Yes, yes, he was. Yeah, think about this. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar played against Will Chamberlain and Shaquille O'Neal. Holy shit. Yeah. And Bruce Lee. Yeah. <laughs> but never Nick Cage. Oh. Aww. Moving on. On May 12th, West Ham United won the FA Cup, beating Arsenal 1-0 at Wembley Stadium. Midfield playmaker Trevor Brookings scored the winner with a rare header. Oh, I actually understood all that. Yep. Well, that's soccer, not cricket. That's why we Oh, yeah. 
we're, we're cousins to soccer. Cricket is like another species. <laughs> and lastly, in sports, in a very strange baseball game, the New York Yankees beat the Kansas City Royals 16-3 to on May 14th as Bucky Dent hits an inside-the-park home run, and the Royals walk 14 batters, including five with bases loaded. Oh, holy <laughs> crap. <laughs> yeah. That, 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 those Kansas City Royals put on a stinker of a performance that day. Five, six, seven, eight. Shut nine. your face, hole. So nine out of 16 runs were basically from Kansas City fucking up. Pretty much. Wow. And an inside-the-park home run, for those of you that don't know that, um, is when you manage to hit the ball – not out of the park, but you still manage to round all the bases and get to home before they throw you out. So they got to really be fucking up the outfield. Yeah. To- you and you got to be really fast. That music was playing when that happened. Right. All right. Cool. Play us off, keyboard, Joel. All right. So on to the main show. So we realized after four years, we still have not talked about Friday the 13th and the many sequels and many remakes and reboots and all that other stuff. Yeah, we've been averaging about one classic horror movie rebooted per year. Like we did Halloween. Have we done? We did Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah, I can't remember. Yeah, we did that. Probably next year. We did did Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh, that's right. Nightmare on Elm Street was the other one we did. Yeah. So we still have not done... Friday the 13th. So this is the 1980s uh, classic horror genre starting film um, directed by Sean S. Cunningham, who uh, went on to do such other awesomes like Deep Star Six, which actually I've seen that and I like that. Uh, Last House on the Left, Freddy vs. Jason, and is currently working on a documentary called The Nurse with the Purple Hair, which I don't know what that's about. But Primarily, I mean, more known as a producer, producer any more than a director, but he's big name in horror. Okay. Now, uh, written by one Victor Miller, who wrote Friday the 13th, Freddy vs. Jason, episodes of One Life to Live, and All My Children. <laughs> so there's Which kind of a... Makes sense. Kind of, how? Didn't you ever see One Life to Live? Dude, there's a lot of murder in that. There's so much decapitation. Right? Okay. Also, uncredited, Ron Kurtz, uh, who actually had writing credits in Part 2, Part 3, the final chapter. We knew that was a lie. Um, a bunch of shorts, Michael versus Jason shorts. He's he's done a little bit of writing for all, all sorts of Jason and horror movies. So, Who writes short shorts? <laughs> You'll see that a lot in uh, some of these horror franchises, and this one in particular, where like even some of the cast, they keep coming back for Friday the 13th related stuff. But other than that, most of their career is like crowd, uncredited. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like that Kevin Bacon guy. I don't know what the fuck he's done since. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he just kind of disappeared. It was weird. Stir of Echoes and then nothing else. Oh, Am I the only person that likes Stir of Echoes? Oh, no. Yes. Yeah, I didn't. I, I, I love didn't that movie. Like we, I, I didn't, didn't love it, but I didn't dislike it. We need no. to do Stir of Echoes. The soundtrack is awesome. Yeah, it is. Uh, so starring Betsy Palmer as Mrs. Voorhees, Adrian King as Alice, Jeannie Taylor as Marcy, Robbie Morgan as Anne, Kevin Bacon e. in e. his... E. Annie. Jesus. <laughs> 
Kevin Bacon. Yeah, Adrian King is a good example where, like, you look at our IMDb, it's like, oh, Friday the 13th, Friday the 13th Part 2, what's eating Gilbert Grape, huh? While you were thinking, while you were sleeping. And then you look, oh, in what's eating Gilbert Grape, she was voice in group. Well, in, in her defense, she was on um, The Awful Show and really, really very, very sweet woman. She, uh, after Friday the 13th Part 2, she got a stalker and uh, oh. she dropped out of horror because she was afraid for her life. And um, finally, when she started going to a couple of conventions, she realized that that wasn't the norm. <laughs> that was just kind of one crazy fan. And so she kind of weeded her way back in and does the horror circuit on the that that now. But she lives very kind of secluded um, lifestyle because she just did not want to have that happen again. Well, I no, I'm glad I brought up that because that's that's an interesting story that only you could have told pretty much. <laughs> and that kind of makes I, sense because she was time like, with her. Almost, um, she was like the first scream queen. One of them. Yeah, I mean, yeah, she's very early on. Yeah, I mean. Uh, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis would have been before her. Right. I mean, that's the whole reason Sean S. Cunningham wrote Friday the 13th is because he was trying to cash in on the, the Halloween model, which was independent film makes billions of dollars. Um, and you should mention the other two actors here. Uh, Walt Gorney, who uh, was one of the original Harbingers. He, they, they got a death curse. Oh, yeah. Know. He was he was from uh, Phantasm. Wasn't he? No, different no. guy. They look kind of alike. You're thinking of Angus Scrim. Oh, okay. Yeah, he only has. But was in Trading Places <clears throat> as Duke Domestic. Yeah, I'm gonna go. He was with but one. He one of the winos. And he's he was very, very well known as uh, as this particular character anyway, just because he's he's crazy Ralph. Okay, and then Ari Lehman as Jason, and now doing the tour circuit as First Jason, which. If you've ever listened to the music, it's kind of bizarre because he plays a uh, a guitar <coughs> shaped, shaped like a um, a machete, and it's just him and a drummer basically. And he's totally just latched onto the fact that he was technically the first Jason ever, and has turned that into a a franchisable, well, marketable thing. He's got his own hot sauce. He's got his own albums that he releases. He tours. He goes to all the the uh, the venues for uh, the conventions. Very big presence online as mm-hmm. as that character, even though he only was in it for you know <laughs> five seconds or whatever at the end. And uh, he um, currently is working on Action Super Squad Des Moines: The Scourge of Satan. It's coming out in 2018, which I he plays Kirk Kirkland. God, that's huh. ridiculous. I was yeah, telling Joel does. I got to meet him. Yes, I was going to say, make sure you tell that story. <laughs> yeah, when um when I was doing Tiki Geeks, when we did the 24 hour uh, Zerko um. Uh, flea market that was out here out of the state fairgrounds he was literally across the aisle from us so we spent the whole evening talking to him while we were there for 24 hours so he um pretty cool guy i was gonna say was he a nice guy oh yeah yeah he, he was you know nice as they can get i mean the soup nazi was there too and you know he was they were all pretty cool it's just you know they were none of them were like like i can't remember any one of them being like Oh God, that guy was a complete asshole. No, everybody there was actually pretty cool. <laughs> well, you also got to meet Robert Zadar too, though, didn't you? Yeah, Robert Zadar was there also. So rest and, in peace. And um, uh, Lou Ferrigno. There was kind of a lot of people there. Now that I'm thinking back on it. So, cool. But uh, the the movie was filmed and with the trivia as Camp Nobi Bosco, 
in New Jersey. The camp is still in operation. It has a wall of Friday the 13th paraphernalia in honor that the movie was set there, which has to be putting a lot of new parents at ease when they send their kid to camp. (laughs) (laughs) You have a wall of machetes. That's fantastic. Um, Victor Miller had originally given Jason the name of Josh. After deciding that it sounded too nice, he changed it to Jason after a school bully. (laughs) I thought that was fun just because. Yeah. Yeah. So the film made $39,754,601 on a budget of 550000 Hence why there were sequels and hence why Sean Cunningham opted for the model that uh, John Carpenter used for Halloween because he quickly learned that with the right combination of things, you can make a shit ton of money. Yeah, looking at this, a lot of the stuff from Friday the 13th uh, was a direct reaction to Halloween. Like the pacing was set different from Halloween since Halloween's very slow and deliberate. This was set up deliberately to be in contrast to Halloween as a roller coaster ride with the kills coming quicker. Well, and he also wanted to make sure he wanted to up the, the gore factor because Halloween, there's pretty much no blood. He and this one wanted to make that kind of one of the focal points and again focus on a, a holiday, which of course started a trend. And And if you look directly after this film, there's shit tons of just holiday themed movies that came out. Still waiting on my Arbor Day movie. I'm shocked that someone has not made an Arbor Day Halloween movie for like sci fi or direct to video. Yeah, it's one of the few holidays that hasn't been touched yet. Can't see why. Sure that's well, I mean, never mind. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop that joke. Joke police caught that one in time. All right, Arbor Day, make like a tree and leave or <laughs> die. That should not be that. Okay, I see why you dropped it. That wasn't good. <laughs> Holy shit. Okay. Uh, Tom Savini was one of the first crew members on board for the film because the producers idolized his special makeup effects in Dawn of the Dead, 1978. So... You don't know who Tom Savini is. He's the guy with the crotch gun. Yes. Uh, and that's that's the horror luminary who I met and had drinks with. Oh, was he cool? Yeah, he was really cool. He uh, one year when I for people who don't know, I used to own and operate a gaming convention in Chicago. And one year, uh, Ides of March game convention was at the same hotel as a big horror convention. I don't remember the name, but the uh, nights at the bar were really odd with all of the gamers and people showing up in their horror stuff. But Tom Savini was basically holding court at the bar. And those of us who'd been there for a few hours, a bunch of us were hanging out with him. It was a very bleary, bleary night. I believe it. Well, and that man has segued a special effects career into an acting career. He has his own makeup school. He's just everywhere in, in horror. He's Looks like Danny Trejo, you know, was just a stuntman when he started. And now he's, he was just a prison inmate. Well, when he started <laughs> in Hollywood. <laughs> He was never just a prison inmate. (laughs) (laughs) Danny Trejo in Arbor Day. (laughs) Okay. Now, is this, I'm going to ask this, I'm assuming this is going to be no for all. Is this the first time that any of us have seen this? No. No. Okay. No, but it's been a long time for me. I I probably hadn't seen this movie in 20, 25 years. Yeah. Same for me. I'm here. Uh, I just watched it earlier this year, I think. No surprise there. 
<laughs> Jason is one of, if not my favorite horror icon of this time period. I don't know what it is. I've just always been a fan of Jason Voorhees. The thing I found kind of interesting, having watched it again, because I, I watched it the first time pretty much as soon as I came of age after it was released. So my memories of it were different. It, it's not as scary as I remember because of all the decades and the fact that we've seen it parodied over and over again. But now in the post-Cabin in the Woods world, Joel's already talked about the Harbinger. It's kind of hard to not look at Friday the 13th through that lens with the archetypal characters. I don't know if anyone else the, saw that. The Harbinger? Well, in the Cabin in the Woods, you've got all of these classic horror archetypes. The Harbinger, who warns the uh, group oh. of teenagers that something bad's about to happen. You've got the Scholar, the Fool, the Whore. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, now I know where you're going with that. Okay, And, yeah. and that's the thing, is I, I definitely was reinterpreting the... Uh, the movie through the lens of cabin in the woods n- now that this, I've seen, but, but this was one of those movies that, you know, has a bunch of tropes, but when it did them, they were tropes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You're kind of like looking at the origin of those horror tropes that now are codified into almost laws. Mm. I mean, and if you look back, you look at psycho being the original slasher film more or less. And then there was a, a long gap before it kind of became a thing. Halloween, brought it into the modern age and then Sean S Cunningham kind of streamlined it. And then from there, it just was off to the races because slasher films were, I mean, that was the bread and butter of horror for most of the eighties. Um, uh, you know, and nowadays it's more like the supernatural and, and things, but this was the way it was. And most people think about this as being, you know, Jason being the killer, but in this film, it's his mom. That's actually the murderer. And I um, kind of want to call bullshit on that because as much as I enjoy this and the, the memory of watching this movie, cause I was like, Josh, I saw it when I was finally old enough, you know, 1980, I was, wasn't even 10 yet, but <clears throat> I was four, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it, it's, it's kind of that we're going to bring in a character in the third act of the third act that you haven't even really heard too much about. You know, it's and that, and that if you think about it too long, it doesn't really make any sense for what's happened in the movie beforehand. Right. So you've right. got. Well, I mean, they were, because she is an amazing killing machine until it comes time to kill the main character, and then suddenly she's just as inept as an old lady. Well, oh. I don't know. I think most of the kills are surprise kills. A lot of the kills are surprise kills. I mean, it's it's not so much as she has a killing. She's a killing machine, but she's good at staying quiet until she can do something. But I I agree with you at the end. It seems like she's – I was trying to equate it to a – She's strong enough to shove an arrow through a mattress and through a person's throat, but not not strong enough to overtake a, a woman in a one-on-one fight. Well, she's like a glass cannon without with a quick recovery time because you kick her once in the chest. She's down for a good minute, <laughs> but then she recovers in that minute, and she's her hit points re, you know, restack immediately. So you know, You know where Jason gets his regeneration powers at least. I know. To genetics, but <laughs> I just, I just, didn't, I just thought that was kind of like a as as cool of a twist as it could have been. It would have been even better if you had known that there was a mother around there somewhere beforehand. It's like suddenly she just shows up. Surprise! I don't know. I, I kind of think that that 
it, it's more about the campers than it is about the identity of the killer until you get down to the final girl who immediately like runs into the arms of the killer and then you have the reveal. It all seems old hat now, but as we were talking about, it's this is what established those tropes. And yeah, I, I kind of felt the same way as you guys are talking about it, but thinking about it, uh, I think it's that reveal that's important. And it's weird, like, we're not talking about the plot because we practically can't. I mean, the plot is basically camp counselors show up, camp counselors get killed, and now we're talking about virtually the only plot-related thing. It's the drowned boy's mother who turns out to be the killer. Which, Hmm. again, borrowing from Psycho, where you start with one direction, you think that the film is headed, and then you pull the rug out from under the audience to where it's like, oh, okay, well, now we're doing something different. And and I agree with Josh that if you look at the murders that happened earlier on, like in the Jeep or uh, in the uh, the bathroom, you know, these were all things where these people didn't know what was going on until it was too late. Whereas Alice, at the, she knew, she realized what was going on and she was in that fight or flight mode where she was trying to get away, but she was fighting when she had the opportunity. So she was a bit more prepared than the other people. Although uh, Pamela was... Um, yeah, she by that point apparently was exhausted. For sure. And I think that uh, one of the points is that it's more about how hardened Alice becomes in her role as the final girl than uh, how weak the killer is. Like, as soon as Alice realizes what's going on, she gets smarter and smarter and stronger and stronger until she's able to overcome the killer at the end. Mm-hmm. Which, incidentally, is one of the many reasons I hate Friday the 13th Part 2 so much. Yes. Yeah, that first 10 minutes just totally negates the entire film. Yep. <laughs> basically. Uh, she never liked that either. But um, And just a fun little trivia fact that was not included in the trivia. But when Pamela gets her head decapitated, the hands that are there grasping at her missing head, those are uh, Tasso's hands. He's Tom Savini's right-hand man. Uh-huh. Um, so those are actually man hands that were in the scene. That's interesting. Yeah. I I also kind of wonder if this movie isn't for a lot of people a little bit like Mad Max, where people assume that Mad Max is actually the second one, where I think a lot of people assume that Friday the 13th is actually the third one, where you've got Jason and the hockey mask, and mm-hmm. uh, he's doing all the killing, and he's an unstoppable force. That's something that doesn't even start until the third movie in the series. Mm-hmm. Second. Well, well the, all of oh, he is the killer in the second, but he's got the sack. Right. The hockey mask doesn't come till he gets it off of. Uh, oh God, I forgot his name. The fat prankster. Yeah, that that's what I'm talking about. That's one of the reasons why the third one is my favorite in the series is because all of the iconic elements are in place. Mm-hmm. And I think people who go back after having not seen them for decades might watch one and two and go, what's going on? This isn't how I remember it. Right. Yeah. And that's and it took him I think that was part of it because it was such a new concept. Like I said, you've got the archetypes that we that we know from Cabin in the Woods. They were just learning how to put this stuff together. You know, okay, he's wearing a sack on his head. Well, a sack on his head really is apparently that scary. So we got him uh he has a new mask, you know, that sort of thing. And it wasn't until the third one they finally got the the chemistry right. Well, and you think about it, I mean, again, once the trend setting, after that, every killer that they had in the slasher film had to have some sort of iconic look. So they gave him different masks based on whatever the premise of the film was. And 
that became a trope that's now carried into the modern age too. So this really inadvertently uh, laid the groundwork for just about every other horror film to come that was in the same mindset. Or, now, what were some of the what were some of the movies that came out like um, reactive to this? Uh, you mean like the holiday themed films or Saturday the Thirteenth? Saturday the 14th, there was a movie. There yeah, was. there was a movie. I remember I've seeing it at the video that. store. Oh, I've yeah, seen There's that a parody in Saturday the 13th. So. Yeah. yeah. No, I've seen that. The that 14th. Saturday the 14th. I, I think he's yeah, that's that's probably. That's no. what I said, the 14th. We're not entirely sure what you're saying anymore. You're, you're, you're on. <laughs> Starring Nick Cage. Saturday the 14th, yeah. So, um, that's what I said. But I mean, not, not so much a comedy one. I mean, was there, Joel, I'm asking for your horror knowledge you know after this what was the next big slasher flick that popped up afterwards to to be like oh we got to jump on that well i mean silent night deadly night was a big one um april fool's day my bloody valentine i said um, just one man seriously i'm trying to think <laughs> there uh well then there was you know like new year's evil and um yeah. i mean if you can count happy birthday to me and you know just where they have well and april fool's day is a is actually a really good example because here's a film where it was in 1986 it's based on a holiday there's a killer that you don't find out until the end is the host of the party but they find out that it was all just a joke and set up for a a uh, themed attraction that she was going to create and nobody had actually died that actually so, i remember seeing that and that one actually was really good was better than I thought it was going to be. What was that? April Fool's Day. Mm. Now was that but the one they, where the guy got, a guy got strangled when his his scarf got stuck in the back wheel of his uh, motorcycle? I haven't seen it in a while. I don't remember that. Um, Might be. That's what I recall from that one. But anyway, back to Jason. But yeah, I mean there, that's kind of where it, it went from there. And there's a whole lot of other ones that came out. I mean, the '80s was the heyday of of slasher films, and they were just Every every other week, it seemed like there was a new one coming out, um, including more Friday the Thirteenth films. Of course, mm-hmm. we had eleven in the original franchise and then the reboot. Now, in my high school, there was a definite line between the people that were Freddy fans and the people that were Jason fans. Yes, <laughs> you could not be I, a fan I of both. See that, yeah, uh, though you bring it up, it's interesting to me. I, I noted uh, the way the series travel were parallel for me, where you've got a Pretty decent, but not as good as I remember first entry. An incredibly disappointing number two. And then number three is my favorite in the series for both Friday the 13th and uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Dream Warriors. Oh, yeah. Dream Warriors is where it's at, man. I'm with you on that one. I don't know why you guys love that one so much. Because it's awesome. Shut up. Patricia Arquette, Dokken theme song. Shut your face, old Pat. Dokken, exactly. You've made my point. The uh, dream powers start to come out with uh, the custom kills theme being uh, sharpened to a razor's edge. Mm-hmm. You got the D and is the D and D kid in that one? Yeah, because yeah. I think yeah. it's the comic book kid who's in the fourth one. Yeah, yeah, was super Freddy. Um, yeah, I don't know why it is that way, but but you're right. I mean that. I mean Halloween is maybe an exception where the third one went to a totally different film altogether, <laughs> which is a great film by itself, but. Um, there is a definite line between the two, and I've always been on the Jason side of the camp, personally. Um, the camp. Uh, ah, nice. That was accidental. 
That's what, so Pat, you are the not as much as the rest of us horror fan. I, I think the, what Joel is obviously the horror true believer, but you're on the opposite end of the spectrum. How'd you feel about this one? I am not a fan of the Friday the 13th franchise. I'm not a fan of slasher horror. I'm not a fan of gore horror. I don't know. I mean, I've just never really been into it. I, I don't like a movie whose basic uh, character arc is, how is this person going to die? Eh, it's not that interesting to me. Was that the rewatching it? Was that your main issue with it? Or you, was there anything else going on? Were you bored? Were you, what? No, I mean, I mean, it, 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 it serves its purpose. You know, I mean, the women are always, you know, attractive to look at and, you know, yada, yada, but you know, they're all going to die. And it's just a matter of, you know, it's like, you know, there's going to be, I mean, again, it wasn't tropes when it was made, but at, at this point it is, you know, and I don't know. I just, I don't really, I've never really been a big fan of the whole Friday. I've only seen like two of the movies in the past. And I've just never really cared to catch any of the Friday the 13th. I've never seen any of the crossover stuff. I've just never been a big fan of this franchise. So, I mean, it was fun. To, you know, it was fun to watch as a um, through the lens of, you know, its place in history of, of cinematic history. But I didn't really care for it as a movie itself. Well, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, you bring up an interesting point. Like, if I had not remembered who the final girl was because the tropes are so codified, within, like, uh, her first four words, you could easily identify who the final girl was going to be. Oh, yeah. Well, and what's funny is that Sean Cunningham, before this was made, was he was trying to get funding together to make a soccer movie. And (laughs) this was his way. He was going to get the funding together to make his soccer film, which I don't believe ever even happened because this, uh, since it was such a cash cow, he's like, fuck that. We're going to make these movies now. Um, this was just a way they, he put a, an ad out in, uh, one of the trade magazines just with the, the poster art. And that was it just a real basic thing. And it caught enough attention that he got the money to make it. And then of course, once the ball was rolling, he wasn't going to look back. But this film is is so like emblazoned the whole series in people's minds that there's been numerous books written about it. There was a, I have a uh, the DVD set up on my shelf there of the Crystal Lake Memories, which was based on the book. And it's the documentary is four hours, and there's three other extra hours of interview footage that they had, so seven hours total, just about this franchise. And I can't think of any other film series out there that has that much. I mean, there's other ones, yes, that have that much. But in horror, that has that much to it. Even Nightmare on Elm Street has, falls a little short. So I don't know what it is about it, but it caught people's attention. Now, would you say that this is the most influential film in the genre on those tropes that we're talking about? I mean, no. just aside. No, really? No. I mean, Halloween is is the 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 gold standard for the modern slasher, even though psycho started it all. But if you're looking at, I'm not talking about paragon of the genre. I'm talking about establishment of tropes because, uh, Halloween aside from the final girl, uh, and some of the stuff with the killer getting back up, like you don't see quite as many of the tropes in, in Halloween. Well, there aren't the archetypes either. For sure. Yeah. No, I would agree. If, as far as that goes, just overall with the, creative kills you know sex equals death um the gore the the different specific 
like I said, the, the archetypes that they have for each character. So you have somebody to identify with. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. I mean, that's, and again, it was all just completely on accident. None of it was pre-planned or thought out in advance. It just happened. Um, you know? Yeah. And, uh, we, I mentioned cabin in the woods, but you talk about sexy ghouls death. That's also like the rules from the scream series. Mm-hmm. A lot of those get pulled directly from this. This is going to be the genesis of that kind of thing as well. Yeah, no. And that's, that's very true. I mean, I can't think of any other film between, uh, you know, Halloween in 78 until this that did that. I mean, there were other horror films that came out, but back in the seventies, it was more about the supernatural satanic cults, um, you know, that was the big thing. Rosemary's baby. Yeah, exactly. And that, and that was almost kind of like the same, the same uh, transition where you had like slasher flicks. You have psycho went into um, Halloween, went into Friday the 13th where you had Rosemary's baby that went into, you know, the omen, the omen, which went into, I'm trying to think of some of the really like really bad, you know, the oh, double bad bride ones are good ones. That sort <laughs> of had like the exorcist. And um, I mean, but, but it, there's like that, almost that, that, transition of you know oh rosemary's, rosemary's baby was messed up i bet we can go just a little bit further i bet we oh can. uh motel hell would be one where they're pushing the envelope oh yeah well but that i mean even that was post um friday the 13th oh that's true where you know uh, and, farmer vincent puts on the pig's head grabs yeah. a chainsaw and he's you know murdering people that's more in the chainsaw and texas had, chainsaw uh, massacre vibe because they're using clavin in there too they're using the yeah they're, they're using the bodies of the dead to make um his meats Beef you know jerky. farmer vincent's famous meats takes all kind of critters to make farmer vincent's fritters that one's surreal i love that there's so little plot wise to talk about that this is turning into an almost like academic discussion of the horror genre well, the film. <laughs> yeah well, and it's cool i mean it's there's no there's no real they go to camp they're going to die you figure out who the who's the who's the last girl and go from there, you know that sort of thing. Yeah, that, I mean that's why I, I don't find these interesting. It's like okay, you know right away. Okay, she's gonna survive. She's gonna show her boobs, and they're all gonna die somehow. And then you just fast forward to the end, and there we go. Okay, done. Well, I, I don't find it. I don't find it fascinating, interesting, or uh, exciting in any way. And that's where the modern horror film kind of has ended up. Is that? A lot of fans kind of were like, I like that and I want that to continue. But other ones are like, I want something a little more. I want more plot to it. I want more story. And especially in the in the last like four years, we've seen a big shift in, especially with the Death Wave movement, where people that want to make legitimate films, but they want there to be horror elements have combined everything. And you're getting some very intelligent horror that is big on plot, but still has the gore and the kills. But it's it's not just about point a to point b to point c movie ends it's got all these other elements into it that turns it into something all together and uh it's it's a good time to be a horror fan because you're getting these films that potentially could you know become uh, even though i don't well, think I, I mean, of lambs is horror but you know that same kind of thing I, w- I would say that i honestly enjoy the final destination series more than the friday the 13th series because at least it has plot you know i mean it's gory and nasty and all that kind of stuff but it does commit to the creative kills bit, which is probably a good way to bring it directly back to Friday the 13th before we go to the break is because we're talking about more general horror stuff. Uh, what was everyone's favorite kill out of this? Uh, it had to it, be Kevin Bacon. 
the the arrow the arrow arrow through the mattress through the throat that was just too it's pretty cool it was pretty damn cool well, and I think most people will agree with that just because it was inventive. It wasn't something anybody'd seen before. And again, it kind of set the standard for how can we creatively, because you can't just go around stabbing people because at some point that gets boring. Just ask me. I've gotten tired of stabbing people a long time ago. Um, <laughs> so they had to oh, step it up. Stab you. <laughs> oh, I love the hobo life, stabbing people with my hobo knife. <laughs> what about you, Josh? Yeah, I, I mean, that was the first one that came to mind. So uh, after Mike said it, I was like, oh, that's a much less interesting question than I thought it was when I asked it. Because it's pretty <laughs> obvious. But I mean, it, you know, there, as far as the kills go, there again, there's some other things that kind of were interesting that were established, like the scene in the bathroom where you've got this, uh, you know, fake axe that they're using to kill the girl in the bathroom. And you know, in order to make sure that you realize that it's not a rubber axe, they hit the they hit the uh, the lamp with something hard, the real axe, so it makes that sound. So it establishes that it's a real weapon. Mm-hmm. So when it is in her head, you don't question it. But all it is is a, a cheap cutaway to give that weight. And those kind of things weren't always thought of, and and it again kind of set a standard to uh, suspend disbelief. Nice. So I always nice. thought that was kind of cool. No, I'm glad you brought an interesting detail to resurrect uh, the purpose of my turned-out-to-be-boring question. <laughs> <laughs> I watched the entire seven-hour documentary twice over and saw that his name is Jason One, and I've uh, I've read countless stuff. And I, this really is one of my favorite series, and I, I don't know that I can pinpoint why, but something about Jason has always kind of struck a chord. Cool. All right, well, you want to take a break, and we'll come back and talk about uh, 2009? Yeah, sounds great. Awesome. We'll be back in a bit and bring up 2009's triple reboot of Friday the 13th. All right, we are back. For Friday the Thirteenth, two thousand and nine, uh, a I said at the end of the before the end of the break, uh, tr- this is almost like a triple remake. Uh, yeah, a group of young adults discover a boarded-up Camp Crystal Lake where they soon encounter Jason Voorhees and his deadly intentions. So, this one is directed by Marcus Nispel. Nispel. Nispel, yeah. Nispel, known for directing Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which we watched a couple years ago. Conan the Barbarian, which we watched in our first show. Pathfinder, which I've never seen. So he's got some other stuff on here. Uh, Moonchild and Stowaway are two show, two things that are going to be coming out. In 2015, there was something called Exeter. He's he's a very visual director. I think he was primarily uh, uh, music videos before he became a film director. And it's got a very visual style, um, very cinem- very much into the cinematography of the film and color schemes and things like that. He's an interesting director, not a lot of fantastic films, but Exeter was big on style, but short on plot. <laughs> mm. So also for the... Oh, good. good. Sorry, was, go ahead. I was going to say also the uh, writers on this, from the screenplay writers, Damien Shannon and Mark Swift. And I bring these two up because they are both writers on, along with Friday the 13th. But the Freddy vs. Jason movie from 2003, yep. which is one that everybody wanted to see. Everybody wants, because that was like the big question in high school. Freddy vs. Jason, who wins? 
and that labored in in development hell for a over a decade time. and yeah. went through about 15 to 20 different writers and these guys finally were the ones that won the day and got the the deal um and that's i think why they carried him over for this yeah and it was pretty good you know, for a versus versus movie um other writing credits were mark wheaton and victor miller for story and characters from previous ones uh this one stars a one jared padalecki as clay miller known for mm-hmm. 13 enormous pecs <laughs> supernatural <laughs> Babyface mcgee as i call him yeah 13 14 seasons of supernatural it never ends no and you know what 14 though? years of women in refrigerators I've never seen it. You had to have seen it. You lived at my house for a while. I know. I've seen you guys watch it. I've never oh, watched it with you. It's... I mean, you guys talked about it. That and um, Fringe were the two ones that you guys always tried to get me to watch. Yeah. It's – you know what, though? It's it's pretty much a supernatural soap opera at this point, but good on them. They found their niche. They're filling it. They're making money right on. Uh, Jenna is played by Danielle Panabaker, who's known as Caitlin Snow or Killer Frost in The Flash. Uh, and l- long ago, Sky High, she played Layla. Sky High wasn't that bad. No, it really no. wasn't. It was fun. It had Kurt Russell, so there's 50% of it right there for me. <laughs> so Amanda Rigetti, Whitney Miller, uh, she is... Known for Captain America, she's a well Shield agent. Grace Van Pelt, Pelt in The Mentalist, and Isabel from Role Models. I was going to say Role Models is probably the place you'd rec- be able to pick her out of a crowd. Yeah, Travis Van Winkle, Dick. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, Heart of Dixie accepted the last ship. Trent, the cocksmoker in this one, he <laughs> exists in this movie just to be the douchebag. Josh, I didn't know your dog was in this film. Oh, I see what you did there. Aaron <laughs> you as Chewie. Uh, also in 2021, Disturbia, Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. I hope that Aaron Yu is a guy that we're talking about in 20 years going back over his career. I, hope like, he I, I, I haven't seen him in a lot, but every time I pick him out as a character actor, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's that guy. <laughs> yeah, and that's I think he was, I mean, for what he was doing in this one, he was actually one of the more entertaining characters. Yeah. One of the best parts of the movie, I think. Yeah. And then the big question is who is played, who plays Jason? This is Derek Mears. Uh, he is known for playing the lead Zorgon from Zarutha, uh, the classic predator from the movie predators. Um, imagine every large, he was Renzo in the new, uh, twin peaks. Yeah, we got a couple of actors who, uh, th- this is their jam, is they usually have a lot of prosthetic work or costume work, and Derek Mears is one of those guys. And another weirdness about this one is he also is a voice actor. He does the voice of Corsic Albin in uh, the TV series Ruby. Yeah, he's, he's uh, because he's got a big bald head and no facial hair or anything, he gets cast a lot as killers and things, um, well, for makeup purposes, and then also just because he looks kind of menacing, but he he's actually a really nice, really funny, down-to-earth guy. And if you ever get a chance to watch the series Holliston, which was... Well, a, you, don't, you don't have any hair, and you're not menacing at all. No, but he is. Well, he's also um, not six foot eight or whatever, however tall this dude is. He's, he's a very funny guy. But, um, no, he's also played in uh, 
Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters. Nice. Starring uh, Jeremy Renner, which was just as awful as you think it should be. Um, <laughs> Never heard of it. No, it's it would be right up your alley. Yeah. <laughs> as in a movie you don't want to see. Yes. And then Willa Ford uh, from... <laughs> She played. She was the host of something called Pants Off, Dance Off, which she's primarily a pop singer. That's kind of why yeah. I threw in there. She was kind of a name briefly at that time. Pants Off, Dance Off, man. That's there. I've go. actually heard of that. Yeah, me too. Really? Mm-hmm. And she's topless. Oh. Yeah. Well. Yeah. There you go. And she posed in Playboy as well. Okay. Well, then we know why she's in this movie. Uh, speaking of which, in the trivia, producer Michael Bay. <laughs> Walked out of the movie <laughs> premiere saying that it had too much sex. And which not is, enough explosions. Which is funny because Mike, well, and Michael Bay, when he started Platinum Dunes, his whole goal was to, you know, kind of shoot off and do some of these horror films. He's a horror film fan, uh, like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which kind of started the whole thing. So I think that's funny that he, that that happened. Well, it, maybe he just wasn't paying attention when the original ones were out. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, That's uh, a key element, sir. In this movie, Jason wears both the legendary hockey mask, the burlap sack, and the burlap sack, although neither of those appeared in the original. Now, this is what we were kind of talking about, where there was the, this is almost a triple. Uh, yeah, like, once we get through trivia, I want to delve into that. So he starts off wearing the burlap sack, ditches that, and puts on the hockey mask, and because what we were saying before, it was the mom in the first one in the 80s, then he wore the burlap sack, then he picked up the, the hockey mask in the third one. So they kind of like crammed a whole bunch of that together. Yep. Uh, so on hiatus from their show, both Jared Padalecki and his Supernatural co-star Jensen Ackles did remakes of 80s slasher movies, Jared doing Friday the 13th and Jensen doing My Bloody Valentine. Uh, they also starred in the 2005 remake uh, House of Wax before Supernatural aired. And if you ever want to see Paris Hilton die... Then watch House of Wax. That's the only reason to watch it. So in we the did sc- watch it. You didn't? Did we? Mm-hmm. No, we didn't. I don't think I've ever seen it. I've never seen it. I've I've seen it, but I don't remember watching it for this. Have you been cheating on us with another podcast? <gasps> I saw I saw this that movie for some reason, and I don't think I would have seen it for myself. No, we never. Maybe you're just Wax. sitting around waiting for some nudity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In the script, Jenna actually escapes with Clay and Whitney, enjoying long enough moment of peace while they hide that she would make a joke about hoping her second date with Clay went much better. Jason would then show up and to kill her with a fire extinguisher. They didn't have enough budget to do, do that, so they skipped it. So, Which seems odd, because I figure Michael Bay has pretty deep pockets. So, Yeah, in 2009, did he have deep pockets? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, you got to figure that any project will eventually spend all of its budget, and they'll have to make some changes. Yeah. Except Avatar. Well, all yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> Just get more money. Speaking of movies with no plot and... I was going to say, they ran out of money to buy the script, so they just ripped it off of Pocahontas. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I still haven't seen Avatar. You're not missing anything. I'm... If, if, I, if, I want to, if I want to see a bunch of beautiful crap with no plot, I'll go to a, a, a Universal Studios and ride a theme park ride. Or a strip club. Oh. <laughs> okay, so Friday the 13th. Well, how many... Just, oh, standard question. How many of us was this the first viewing? Me. Me. Nope. My first. Also me. I watched it about two months ago. Of course you did. 
How about you, Mike? Yeah, first time. So three or four, three out of four, which is about what I would expect for this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any horror movie, I'm just going to assume Joel has seen it. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> That's kind of my bread and butter. Um, what's interesting is, is like I said, they crammed everything into it. So in the opening sequence before the film even starts, you get the scene with between Alice and, well, what we assume is Alice and uh, Pamela Voorhees. Where Played by they, Nana Visitor. Yep. I mean, if you're a Star Trek geek, you'll recognize her as Major Kira. Hmm. Well, they'd asked uh, uh, Betsy Palmer to reprise the role, and she turned him down. She's not uh, totally opposed to the films, but she's kind of distanced herself from all of them um, anymore. And so she's like, no, that's all right. Thank you, though, I <laughs> for the offer. From what I heard, uh, they actually initially wanted to have a bunch of cameos in there, but after she said no, they gave up on all of them. They're like, no, if we can't get her, we don't want to do anybody else. Which oh. makes sense. Yeah. For her 45 seconds of scream, uh, screen, scream time, her, <laughs> I actually really appreciate a non-visitor's uh, portrayal of Mrs. Voorhees. She didn't get a lot of screen time, but I thought she was awesome in the role. Nice. Well, and I think it was probably a smart move on on the the filmmaker's part to skip the entire first film only because... Not because they couldn't do it, but because, you know, everybody at this point expects Jason, if you're going to see a Friday the 13th film, but they also wanted to pay homage. And so they tied it all together. And I think, honestly, and I know you wanted to talk about the the mask switch up. I think that the the sack that they used in this was far more frightening um, and effective than the part two mask. Well, well it absolutely. Was, it didn't just look like a sack he put on his head. It looked like something he had wrapped around his head, which is just infinitely creepier to mummify yourself. Sack technology has... They wanted to skip to the good one. (laughs) Right, right. So, but yeah, so they had that going on. Also, the... What did you think of the change-out? Well, actually, before we get to the change-out from the the sack to the mask, um, how do you like that intro of 15, 20 minutes of movie before you even get to the titles? Uh, It it blew my mind because uh, I uh, totally fell for the fake-out. Like, uh, I knew Jared Padalecki was in here, and I couldn't figure out how they were going to get him in with such a small cast. And I'm like, they're killing him pretty quickly. Plus, the they did exactly five, who are almost exactly the archetypes from Cabin in the Woods. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I, I fell for it. And when I realized, oh, he's got the sack on his head, and then we hit the title, I was like, holy shit, that's what they did. They just did two flashbacks to get through Friday the 13th one and two and get us into three. And all of a sudden I was in like they would have to do a lot of shit for the rest of the movie for me not to enjoy it because I love that choice so much. And I I mean, I don't I I find it well not hard to believe. I mean, you're obviously but I don't know how you didn't see that coming. I saw it coming and I don't ever see that shit coming. Like I try. I, (laughs) I always try to just shut my brain off during uh you know horror movie type stuff you know because i know there's just gonna be a lot of dumb shit that would annoy me so but i even figured that out i was like oh this is just gonna be like you know the first kills and then they're gonna well without giving too much away uh too early but they they explain a lot of the things in this that they choose to kind of just uh dance around in all the other original films but um one of the things that i liked one of the changes that they did was um he's full on running after these people. Not always. Sometimes he is, is walking and skulking about, but that opening sequence after he's uh, murdered everybody, except the last two Whitney and the guy in the bear trap, when he 
comes out of the woods and comes down with the machete full bore and a run. I mean, that's terrifying. I mean, yeah. because, Oh yeah. I was, gonna, I was actually going to mention that if, if nobody else did, like I, I really did like the fact that he ran in this one because that's something that has always just kind of bugged me about the whole franchise is like, you know how Mike or not Mike Myers, Jason Voorhees is this undead zombie, whatever the hell, but he's also at the same time, a, just as much of a ninja as, you know, Robert De Niro's Frankenstein, where he can just, you know, pop up anywhere and no one ever hears him move around. And he, you know, whenever, whenever it's convenient for him to scare somebody, boom, he's just right there. And, well, they kind of explained that in this one with all the tunnels underneath. Right. The and that's another no. thing I was going to get to is like, I, I like that they kind of explained that a little bit too. So I, th- I think this movie did a good job of covering up some serious plot holes. And when he did charge that girl, because I, I was sitting there thinking, okay, oh, she's the one that's going to get away to tell the story or whatever, and blah, blah, blah. And after, right after he buried the machete and pulled it out of the guy's head, and he slumps down, and he just charges her. And then they you know, they showed the title. Uh, I, I, too, was like, that was pretty fucking cool. See, I, I would have completely bought into it if it wasn't for the incredible foreshadowing of her finding the locket earlier. Right. Because when the second he says, oh, that looks just like you look that looks just like you. You look totally like the girl in the locket. I'm like, okay, there's where we're going for this one. I, you know, it's well, as soon as the machete went through his leg, that was like, okay, there's only him and her left. She's the final girl. This is way too early. What's going on. There's something mm-hmm. going on here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's, Oh my God, there's plot in this one. It's well, and you talk about famous kills in the first 11 films. This one has one of the most gruesome murders in, in any of the series franchise history which is the girl in the the uh sleeping bag hung over the fire that's just brutal okay and i will say that's the problem i did have with this movie is suddenly jason is not just some mindless killer who's like get the fuck out of my yard and just slash 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 now he's turning into jigsaw where he's setting up like traps and you know, hanging people by ropes, you know, in, in, a, in a 30 second span. And pretty, I will give I didn't you like, I didn't I will, like that death because I just thought it was it was a ridiculous, not appropriate Friday the 13th. I, I will give you that. It did seem like he didn't have enough time to throw her in a bag, tie it up, string it over a tree, find a branch that will actually support her. That whole, you know, that whole BS. But the, one of the other things that they did try to do in this one was make Jason more of a survivalist. Yeah, like a hunter, like yeah. she, killing her wasn't the point. She was bait to get them both. Yeah, and he did that a lot. He used, you know, like he did with the um, the the dude with the axe in his back. Same thing, you know. Yeah, until he's like, well, I guess this isn't going to work. I'm just going to shut you up. <laughs> yep. He's like, all right, if they're not going to fall for that, I guess I'm just going to go do well, something else. And that's one of my this axe through the front of you. <laughs> that that leads to one of my favorite scene shots in the entire film, where you get the idea that yeah, he is a hunter, where he's standing on the the roof kind of waiting for them to come out and they do that pan up from the window where Dick is looking out to where he's up on the roof. And it's but that, just, was, that was another one that bothered me because that was like literally like a 30 second gap where he somehow, you know, shoved the kid, you know, shoved the ax through the kid's stomach or through his chest cavity by slamming him down. And then he just teleports to the, to the roof. I thought that was a cool shot. And, was, uh, and, and that's the problem I have with it. It was done because it was a cool shot, not because it made sense. Oh, I don't know. I I think we see a lot of them rushing around through the house, and it's not like he's spending his time doing anything other than training to be really good at killing people. Yeah. It's not like while they're running around the house, Jason's out there going, uh, roof or patio? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, 
he he's already staked out his territory and, and knows what he's going to do because he's had to do this in the past. And one of the other things that I thought was an interesting decision was, you know, well, here you've got um, Richard Berge, who we didn't mention in the, the cast, but playing the police officer who um, or Burgle who comes to the door and you're like, okay, well, what's going to happen now? The cops are there. You've got a gun, et cetera. All these things are going to maybe shift the tone. Well, he bites it before he even gets in the house. You know, yeah. Jason's like, nope, sorry, <laughs> we're not going to do that. I also really appreciated uh, when Jared Padalecki's going door to door and giving out his flyers. When he gets to the house with the old lady who knows more than she probably should, that you can tell if you're paying attention that that's probably Alice from the opening, but they don't wink in a nod. Hey, it's Alice or have her come back at the end or do any of this mid two thousands to current shit where they have to over explain everything. They just let you figure it out and say, yeah, that's probably her. Yeah. Enough. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I'll say, I, I agree with you, Josh. I mean, now in retrospect, I was kind of like, it seemed kind of odd that they would have that in there initially, but then now that you bring it up, you know, the big, huge ass guard dog, you know, angry at the world, wants to be alone, doesn't want to deal with anything. That seems completely, uh, completely feasible. Now, Pat, did you recognize the uh, the stoner guy that uh, that got killed in favor of the mask? No, I guess not. Uh, it's always sunny in Philadelphia. The rapper boyfriend. Oh, Kev, uh, little Kev. Yep, that was him. Really, I didn't. No, I didn't. That didn't click. Huh. Yep. Okay. <laughs> Fun fact for you. Yeah, yeah that's funny. One one uh, thing that is kind of interesting in this is from the second you meet a character, you can tell whether or not they're going to die. And that, like I said, is one of the reasons I don't like this genre. Well, I mean, like this one, like you, the second you met him, it was like, yeah, you're an asshole. You, you're going to die. Now, I yeah. – and uh, the other thing that I kind of – I don't know, kind of was uh, – I don't say upset about, but I was kind of disappointed by was there was a lot of – nods to potential ways to die ways for the kills to happen like the bug zapper when uh chewy goes down to the to the cabin to go go get the tools to fix this friggin chair he stops and he looks at the huge bug, bug zapper and he's like oh wow now that I, was definitely some some meta directing you know like oh are they gonna die this way are they gonna die this way at all sure, a little misdirection yeah, yeah i was i was waiting for a really cool bug zapper kill but unfortunately i did not get that well, and how many of you thought that uh, Daniel Pennebacher was going to be your final girl or at least make it through I was, the film? I was going to get to that when uh, people said that once you met a character, you knew whether they were going to die or not. Because that's the exception there is she's also clearly a final girl. But you get to the end and it's this is the sort of movie there can be only one and it's going to be Whitney. Right. So I thought that I I – don't, don't want to say I completely fell for it. As soon as she was the last through the door, I was like, this is where she gets it. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, she, she had to get killed because basically she, you know, even though the guy was a dick, she left her boyfriend for like eight hours just because, you know, I don't know. It, I thought it was weird that she left with what's his face, Clay, for so long. And then they're just like, he's like, you want to go on a, you want to go on a little trip? Okay. And weird. did you have something about the mass that you were going to talk about, Josh? Or do we we pretty much covered it, but I, I think it was cool that they got the iconic mask without betraying the existence of the first two films with like what we talked about, the the device with the two flashbacks, the the obvious flashback and the fake out. Mm-hmm. Now, 
one of the things that bothered me a bit about this, and most of the fans of the franchise have commented on the same thing, which of course, Jason's got mommy issues. And since he's not all there entirely, he doesn't always realize what's real and what isn't. But the whole sequence with kidnapping Whitney, that's never happened in any of the first 11 films. If he comes across somebody, they're either going to die or they're going to get away and, and die in another installment. But here, he kidnaps somebody, keeps her prisoner for three months or however long it was, month and a half. And um, the whole thing with the tunnels, yes, it explained the plot holes, but I I don't know how I feel about it still. And I've seen this several times since then, but I'm still kind of like unsure. I I think they're just reimagining, redesigning Jason as a a killer. Yeah, I mean, Mm. if you accept that we're going to violate the Jason doesn't run rule, the Jason doesn't take prisoners is maybe a little bit uh, more of a serious rule to break, but it was in service to go in a slightly different direction with the character. Well, and it also made sense because if you've seen the other films, there's multiple times where he gets faked out where people dress in the sweater of his mom or whatever and and pretend to be her so much that he's not sure which way to go. Because in the second one, uh, is it? Tina, I forget that, but she dresses in the sweater and pretends to be Mrs. Voorhees to throw him off her game after she finds a house with a head in it. Um, And the same thing kind of happens here where Whitney's like playing up that role because she does look kind of like her. Hmm. Um, But again, it it plays up to the whole survivalist thing where he's left alone in the woods to his own devices. Well, what's he going to do with his time? He's going to make sure that he can get around easily and have a place to go. And if you're a survivalist, what are you going to do? You're going to, have your bunker, your underground bunker or whatever. Right. And he's pretty much, uh, all focused on, I practically worship my mother. And if anyone intrudes on my territory, I kill them. Those are his two things. And they decided instead of establishing those facts over 11 movies, we're going to do it in one. Right now, here's my, a little bit of my question on this. What triggered Jason? Okay. So the kids come by and they're looking for the pot field in the middle of nowhere, which Pat, I need your professional opinion. Would that be viable to, to use if it's growing wild like that? But that's oh, a yeah. side question. Okay. You give the thumbs up on that. I'll buy it. Yep. <laughs> yeah, You can see buds, not just leaves, which is weird for movies. Usually you just see the leaves. Oh yeah. Yep. They were even weighing them out too. Um, the, I mean, okay. they're going to be rich like they were saying, but you know, they, they could make a, Two, $20,000, $30,000 each. Nice. So they've got, they're hunting for this pot field in the very beginning. That's a, the pre title uh, thing. So that triggers Jason. They're in the wrong place. They mentioned that they had seen that mine earlier that wasn't there, which I'm assuming is one of Jason's caves. Um, but what triggers it when these kids come up to a house that apparently has been on that location for 10 years plus? You know that that house was built there. I mean, why didn't Jason? Why didn't it? Why wasn't there a half-built house where all the people that came, all the construction workers came out, got killed? Well, I mean, maybe at that point, it's uh, what really triggers him is them getting too close to the lake because the first kill is near the boathouse, and then he's like, "Okay, there's a bunch of these. We got a car." He starts ranging out a little bit to make sure that uh, he completely defends his territory. Okay. Now, why he didn't kill whoever built the boathouse and put the boat there, that's a more interesting question, I guess. Well, but it's a fairly modern house, and you got to consider from the time that he saw his mother killed, there's a good however many years between that point and the start of the film where he's on his own, and all these he's not going to be out necessarily murdering people when he's 10 years old. Um, he's going to be just fighting for survival. Where's his ambition? 
<laughs> he's got to establish himself so that he can survive. And so there's going to be a pretty big stretch of time where he's uh, in hiding until he's at a point where he, you know, triggers okay. and is big enough to start doing things on his own. He was yeah. leveling up on vagrants. Nice. Right. He's hobo stabbing with his hobo knife. Now, let one last thing. Whatever happened to douchebag boyfriend? He last time we saw him, he was being driven off, impaled on the back of a tow truck. He had one of the more violent deaths because yeah, he, did. he wasn't entirely dead. And the tow truck driver's like, fuck this, I'm out of here. He's stuck on the back of that thing, just slowly bleeding out. And the driver doesn't know he's there. So by the time I, the driver stops, he's he's dead. Do you think the driver was a nod to Crazy Ralph? Sure seemed like it. It could have been. I mean, could there be. was a lot of that in there. Maybe this was uh, just an origin Crazy Ralph story. <laughs> it's really all about Crazy Ralph. Well, and one of the things that's interesting is that this after this film came out, it didn't do quite as well as they were hoping. Um, it got a lot of negative press originally. It's kind of grown on the fans. I mean, I, it grew on me the more times I've seen it, not unlike the Nightmare on Elm Street reboot, where this one has kind of burned its way into the franchise as being a, a viable contender to it. But um, one of the things that I'm uh, kind of sad about is that they were banding about the idea of a sequel, and they're now talking about another reboot. Well, <clears throat> the sequel... Aww. The sequel to this that they were originally pitching took place during the winter, and it was going to be the first time that they'd ever had that scenario where Jason, you know, what happens on the off season when people aren't there at the lake for the summer? Well, he's going to be out there murdering people in the snow. Um, and it was kind of an interesting twist because Jason, over the course of the franchise, in order to try and uh, keep it vital, they would take him out of his element or change things up to make it different. And that was one of their concepts they had, which hmm. I'm sorry, it never happened. Yeah, I would have liked to see that. I, I was shocked when I saw how low the ratings on this were. We're talking like 20-ish percent and three out of tens all over the place. And hmm. I was just like, I, I get that some people are not into the genre or are hardcore fans and didn't like the changes. But it seemed an unusual amount of vitriol directed at this. And maybe that affected... Uh, my expectations being super low going into it. Yeah. I think and maybe that, it was a crossover for the, for the dislike on it because Padalecki, you know, he's got a huge following from uh supernatural. So you have supernatural people thinking, Oh, Friday the 13th. They maybe have never seen a Friday the 13th movie. Don't realize how frigging visceral it's going to be, you know? And while, yeah, I think there may have been a combination of people who are hardcore Friday the 13th movie fans crossing over with hardcore um, Supernatural fans that comboed combo punch for super dislike on this one. You know what I mean? Like People that like him came in and saw this and didn't like it because it was too bloody, maybe? Tossing it out there? No? All right. Well, since you're talking about like dislike, let's let's head towards our standard question. Thumbs up, thumbs down for both. Uh, I'll go ahead and go first. I would say uh, thumbs down on the first one. Um, it's not a full thumbs down, but it is a thumbs down. And just the opposite on the second one, I would say thumbs up, but it's not a full thumbs up. So hmm. I'm very, I'm very uh, kind of middle-ish on both of them. I just, I don't, you know, I'll, I'll probably never see them again. Um, I, I'm probably an unenthusiastic thumbs up for the original, just because like I appreciate its point in history and cut it a hell of a lot of slack even though it was a little boring and some of the acting was bad. Um, and I'm a 
pretty reasonable thumbs up on the remake. I was pleasantly surprised by this. I'll, I probably won't rush out to see it again a bunch of times, but if they had made that Jason and Winter direct sequel to this, I would have gone out to see it. Cool. But I'd say thumbs up on both of them. Yeah, I got a uh, a thumbs down on the on the first one. Like I said, I, I, I'm with Josh. I recognize that it has its place in film history, horror history, and all that. But at the same time, they were still learning how to do stuff. And, you know, I the introduction of a new character in the third act type of thing and all that really doesn't... It's not, I'm probably not going to watch it again unless we do another Friday the 13th show. But the second one, I, I could buy it. I liked it. Um, I liked them comboing the first three into one one storyline. And I could, I could dig a, sec- a sequel to this one. You know, I was kind of hoping for a uh, Clay turns out to be like the anti-Jason. Like, I was hoping for that kind of like he's coming to finally take Jason down type of sequel to it. But the Jason and Winter sounds awful. Really cool. Cool. I guess that about does it. All right. So, Joel, what do we have next week? Uh, Next week, Once Bitten and What We Do in Shadows. Yeah, we're lightening it up a little bit. Yeah, and uh, this will be – I I will be – uh, going on my first European tour, <laughs> so I will not be with uh, joining you guys next week. Yep, I'll be headed to the land of Guinness and uh, Brexit and David Schollenberger for Uh-oh. our next two weeks. Very cool. All right, so we will uh, talk to you later and uh, get caught up. Watch the go dig up the old classic, classic Jim Carrey's one of his first movies, Once Bitten, and the. Uh, mockumentary What We Do in the Shadows from, I think, 2011. So Sounds about right. Yeah. So we'll talk to you next week. Later. <laughs> I can't believe we got through the whole show and you hadn't done that yet. I think Joel did a little bit. He did? I did. I thought he was sneezing. I'm still trying to wrap my brain around pee party and I shouldn't be <laughs> pee party. All right. We're not going down this alley. All right. Uh, da, 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 if you're in an alley, I get the pee party pee party, especially an alley in the city. Hot time peeing in the city. Back of my neck. <laughs> <laughs> Back of your neck. I don't. Yeah. You're gonna have to get that curve looked at. <laughs> You're doing it wrong. <laughs>